Well, thank you. As again, just to remind you, it would be good to pray with David, Susie, and your family at the end if you'd like to do that, to come over there. You'll notice that I've switched microphones, which means I'm the preacher this morning. So uh, get out your notebooks, get out your Bibles. If you could turn in your Bible to Psalm 34, if you have a Bible. If you haven't, um, I'll put the words up in a minute. Um, But we're in a series over these few weeks in the summer uh, looking at worship, really looking at worship and our worship life through the lens of David or King David from the Old Testament. So it's the life of David... Um, and t- today's talk is about worshipping with God's people, which is, of course, what we've just done. Um, by the way, I claim no credit for this, um, this background picture, which is the, the picture for the weeks um, uh, over, while we're studying this over the last few weeks. Um, and I looked at it this morning, not knowing it was there, and thought, what on earth does that mean? Um, so I asked a few people what they thought it meant, and Bex was very, very spiritual and said, it's to do with being undignified. You know, here's a crown, a sign of dignity um, being just cast off into the sand. I was very spiritual, and I thought maybe it's an allusion to Revelation 4, where in front of the throne there's a sea like glass, and around the throne the elders cast down their crowns. So I thought maybe it's that. Um, or maybe uh, the crown just refers to David, who was a king, and the beach reminds us it's the summer holidays. And uh, <laughs> it reminds me of the place I was bodyboarding uh, in the middle of last week. So... Who knows? What, I don't know. I'm waiting for the answer. That's why I've been asking a few people. I've no idea. <laughs> and he said, you know, so if you get a little bored in the next few minutes, so just try and look at the image. It'll stay up there and try and think what it means for you. <laughs> so, um, so we're in this series looking at the life of David. And the first week, Andy O'Connell um, emphasizes, I'm going to emphasize, that David's choices... His will and his choices, what he decided to do, positioned him for worship. He chose to walk with God. He chose to be honest with God. And he chose to be right with other people. And that, those were acts of his will, not some mystical spiritual experience. And last week, Lois um, looked at the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought, with some degree of success, into Jerusalem. Um, and she made the points that worship is about coming clean before God. Praise God that because of Jesus, we can come uncondemned and clean when we come and worship. And it's about making a sacrifice. And indeed, worship has an element of losing your dignity. When we understand who the King of Kings is and who it is that we worship, that alters our perspective and our sense of... um, who we are, such that there's an abandonment in worship where we don't worry too much about what other people think and how we're perceived. It's how God perceives us that's important. So this week I'm going to be looking, rather than a particular incident or incidents in David's life, I'm actually going to be looking at what we can infer from reading some of the Psalms. So if you've got Psalm 34, that would be great, but if you haven't, I'll read out the first few verses. See if this works. No, 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 that's the wrong way. I've gone backwards. There you go. No, no. Oh, well, there you go. There's Psalm 34. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to read this. This is verse um, 1 to about verse 10. I will extol the Lord at all times, his praise 
will ever be on my lips, will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify or magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Good job Chris is here this morning, isn't it? Oh, no, let's get that one out there. Well, I think so. <laughs> is it my clicker keeps doing that? Okay. And he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man has... The psalmist talking to himself called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, holy, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing and it goes on what we miss completely in this psalm is that in hebrew it's an acrostic which is not a particular kind of adhesive an acrostic is where each line starts with the successive letter of the alphabet so it has a poetic structure which is no doubt written not just to be clever but so that it was easy to remember it just goes through the alphabet. Each line starts with the next letter of the alphabet, which, of course, we completely miss with this. The psalm goes on, and then there's a little bit about wisdom in the middle of it before it carries on. And I could have chosen a number of psalms, really, to draw out just a couple of simple things about our worship. And I'm going to call this, if you like, a pattern for worship in the Psalms. And this is drawn out of a lot of different Psalms. Okay. Number one is really about extolling or exalting the Lord. And um, this word comes a lot in the Psalms to extol or exalt. It means to praise enthusiastically, to go into raptures about, to be lyrical about, sing the praises of, eulogize, rave about, enthuse about, acclaim, speak incredibly highly of, raise to a higher position. It has all of those implications, and it's a common word in Old Testament worship. As an aside, the antonym, the opposite of that, is to criticize rather than to raise up. The opposite is to drag down or to make seem lower just a little aside here that went ouch when I thought about it having a critical spirit having a critical heart is a huge barrier to our worship okay when we sit in judgment about somebody else or what's going on or whatever that puts a block on us worshiping the Lord because it's all about lifting him up eulogizing raving and whatever about how great God is But I notice this, it's an act of the will to worship God, not only for who he is, but the, which is often where our worship, our worship songs are often built around who God is, that is in the Psalms, but the emphasis in a lot of Psalms is about what he has done, 
not just who he is. But both are, of course, equally important. And really, I want to emphasize that the worship in the Old Testament and the worship, sort of worship that David was involved in was really based on what they'd seen God do, his deeds, his acts. Um, I'll try and apply that to us in a bit. Okay, so here's some words that come out of Psalm 34. Let's worship God together. Again, a common theme throughout the Psalms is to understand that worship has a huge importance if it's corporate. And there's an important dynamic about worship being corporate. So, verse 3. Magnify or glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Do it on your own as well, but there's an important dynamic of together. Continually. His praise will ever, always be on my lips. That keeps coming out throughout the Psalms. Other Psalms say about every day, at all times, and forever. Wholeheartedly, with all my heart, means more than just mean with a lot of energy and enthusiasm. It actually doesn't mean that so much. It actually means an outpouring of the deepest parts of us. When we say someone's wholehearted, we usually mean it's just with a lot of energy and a lot of, you know, commitment. It actually means more than that. It means an outpouring of what's within. That may include feelings, emotions, what we really feel, what we're really motivated towards, warts and all, both good and bad. And we'll see that in the Psalms in a minute as well. Finally, also, verbally. I will pray, his praise will ever be on my lips. Maybe slightly controversial, but I'd say the impression through the Psalms is whilst worship is multifaceted and involves the whole person, the mouth is the primary vehicle. We get dancing, we get singing, we get music, we get noise, we get acclamation, we get prostration, we get all sorts of things. Every artistic, creative expression that we can think of has been put there by God and can be used in worship. But nonetheless, there's a special dynamic of his praise being on our lips. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. And I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. Worship for David and for the other people who contributed to the Psalms was hugely to do with on the basis of what the Lord has done. I'd like to rephrase that as worship infused with the reality of life. And that's really where we're going. Even just in this one Psalm, and you can create a whole list from others, David's worship is on the basis of the God who hears, answers, delivers, saves, redeems, protects, provides, and so on. It's what they saw God do in the day-to-day of life. Taste and see that the Lord is good, or that he is good, in verse 8 of Psalm 34. If I was a kind of a modern stroke, postmodern, 2021st century thinker, I'd probably have rewritten that as believe and think that he is good. But it doesn't say that. It says, taste and see, experience and understand that God is good. Now, um, 
Do we have a bit of a problem with this? Well, I think we do. I sometimes do. God's greatness was declared on the basis of his acts or his deeds and wasn't on the basis of it being a kind of a theoretical construct, construct divorced from reality. Kind of a Greek thinking thing. God's great out there somewhere, but not in the everyday smelliness of my life. That was kind of a euphemism. <laughs> anyway, um, God's greatness isn't a theoretical construct for David from the reality of divorce and the reality of life. It is the reality of everyday life. God's greatness is the reality of everyday life in psalm worship. A pre-assumption through which everything is interpreted. God's mighty, powerful acts were seen in everything. And as you get this sense, it's almost, you don't see it at all, or you see it everywhere. Now, I don't want to get too philosophical at this stage. Um, but we do have a little bit of a problem with this. We tend to, um, because we have a lot of good mechanistic, scientific, naturalistic sort of explanations for things, that tends to downgrade our view of God's provenance in so much of everyday life. It's not that we don't believe that. And, co- and so, therefore, that less infuses our worship. The way we kind of work in our Western intellectual world at the moment is we take evidence and we construct from that a worldview. There are huge philosophical problems with doing that, which I won't bother to go into. You can talk to me about afterwards if you want. Rather than having a revelation that God, the creator, is also he who upholds and sustains everything moment by moment. And once we've understood that revelation, interpreting what we see, the evidence through that lens. So here's a little challenge. What from the last week would empower and give content to your worship out of what you've seen God do? If the answer is, I don't know, really, I'd have to think about that one. That might just show how our eyes are not open and how little we are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good or whatever. Now, there's a huge rejoinder about the reality and difficulty and painfulness of life and so on, which I'm going to come to in a minute. But just a little pause for thought. This is why testimony is so important. Because it grounds our worship, not in some sort of theoretical reality of what we think God ought to be like, but it grounds it in our everyday experience. And David expected to see God's mighty deeds in his life, and his worship was fueled with what God had done and what God he'd seen and experienced God do. So, a little bit of work right now. Just take a minute. I want you to think. Where have you seen God's activity in your life in the last week that you would give voice to, given the opportunity, as worship back to him? So I'm going to give you one minute to think about that. And if you want to dare to be so brave, talk to somebody next to you and say, I worship God because... Dot, dot, dot. Don't say the words dot, dot, dot. It doesn't have to be some earth-shattering miracle because he not only creates but sustains and upholds everything. Got one minute to do that. Go. Little thought, then a little word.
Better still, come back next week with a desire to worship the Lord, fueled by what you've seen of his goodness, his greatness, or whatever else this week, or what he's shown you. Better still to have your eyes open, your mouths open, because it says taste and see. It's difficult to taste without having your mouth open. You don't walk around like this. <laughs> but it does sound a bit of a big ask. And there's a deeper sense in which the psalmist, David's worship, was infused with the reality of life. And we have a choice, because those things can either be a hindrance to us worshipping, or they get entangled into our worship. And we have a choice to make about circumstances and a sense of failure and adequacy that can easily be hindrances to us worshipping or even feeling like worshipping. Okay, honesty time here. If you only worship God when you felt like it, how regular would that be? Not a lot. Put your hand up. <laughs> I'm a worship leader sometimes. Since I've learned not to trust my feelings when I lead worship. That's probably, is that true, John? If we, if, we only felt, if we only led worship when we really felt great, I don't think we do it very often. Because feelings, don't, feelings are real, we don't dictate it. So these things, our circumstances and our sense of our own inadequacy or failure or whatever, can easily be hindrances and obstacles to worship. But we see in the Psalms, David takes those very things, the reality of those very things, and entwines them in his worship. David experienced in his life very real opposition. He felt down. He, was, he felt far from God. He was rejected. He doubted. He was in physical pain and distress, bad relationships and illness. And all of those things are woven into the Psalms as part of his worship. And that's a choice. Psalm 27. Oh, incidentally, Psalm 34, the one we read at the beginning, was written while he was on the, on the run for his life. Saul was after him trying to kill him. And he wrote those words. We do have difficult times. Life is hard. We have difficult and distressing periods in our lives. I haven't yet been pursued someone who, by someone who's trying to kill me. It'd be interesting to see how I would respond in my worship to God were that the case. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Great worshipful declaration. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me. That sounds very poetic, but in his case it was a real one. <laughs> my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me. And sometimes it does feel like war breaks out against us. Have you ever had that feeling, where did I go right? Because everything's going wrong and everything's piling up against me. In David's case, it was a real war. Even then will I be confident. Because one thing I ask from God, this do I seek, that I might dwell, hang out in the house of the Lord, in God's presence, all of my life. Be very real about the reality of a difficulty that he's in. But that's actually part of the worship. I remain confident of this. I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go meet with God? Incidentally, that phrase, the living God, is an unusual one. It doesn't mean to say he's alive. It means he's alive and active here and now. Is what the phrase, the living God. That was what's different about the living God, about, as opposed to any other gods. He was, he was here. Okay. My tears have become my food day and night. sensitive here if you've cried in the night that needs to be infused in the reality of your worship Jesus the man of sorrows is intimate and close to those who are sorrowful and it's an open door to worship when we cry these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise amongst the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed? He's remembering back. He feels far from God. And I love this phrase in Psalm 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? There's a declaration of God's greatness. He's his rock alongside his existential experience that he feels forgotten. Somehow, I just think there's a reality check on our worship that needs to be infused a bit more with our experience. Anyway, David wasn't deterred from worship because of the circumstances. It wasn't a hindrance. And he didn't worship with through gritted teeth despite the circumstances. And he didn't praise God for the circumstances. There's a kind of a, a Christian teaching out there that we praise God for the circumstances. Uh, which does seem to have, just to me, to be just a bit unreal, really. Um, David somehow let the circumstances become a driving force for his worship. The difficulty of his circumstances only made him trust more in God's greatness. Only it reminded him more of how much he needed a deliverer and how much he'd seen a deliverer or whatever it was. And somehow we kind of close in when things go bad and leave God out of the picture if we're not careful. But actually it drove him into God. And that's a choice. And finally to finish off, our sense of failure and inadequacy can easily be a hindrance. Lois is absolutely right. Worship. We come to worship clean. But there's a way to get clean very easily. But David was aware of his own inadequacies and weaknesses. We tend to think of worship and confession of sin as separate things. Actually, in the Psalms, they're put right bang against each other and interwoven in amongst. Even in the Lord's Prayer, we start with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. A little bit further on, it's forgive us in the same stanza. The two go like that. And I think we've missed something here in our worship sometimes. It's a common theme throughout the psalm, confessing our wrong, wrongdoing and exalting God pretty much for what he's done pretty much in the same breath. David's own manifest failings were not an obstacle to worship, but became part of the content of his worship, recognizing his humanity and his need of God. And this is where it really is. It's 
That's what it means about wholeheartedness. Oh, praise God, my whole heart. He poured out his heart before God. The failings, the exaltation, the lot. If God's God, he's worth telling him, he's worth telling that not everything's good with us rather than hiding from him. And David understood that in doing so, he received God's mercy. That's throughout the Psalms as well. Psalm 25. Remember, Lord, you're having already declared his trust, now great God is. He goes on to say, remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And then he goes on to say, the Lord confides in those who fear him. My eyes are only ever on the Lord. And his eyes being on the Lord involved in pouring out his heart, good and bad. So, maybe that's a little bit, I This conversation isn't recorded, but when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, the conversation starts about worship. There's a little debate about where the best place to worship is, this mountain or that mountain. And Jesus says, the kind of worship God's after are those who worship in spirit and truth. He said that to her, knowing the truth of her reality. I just wonder... Because she understood and went and told her friends about Jesus. um, Whether she had a moment of worshipful prayer where she poured out to God. Almost in relief, knowing that God knew. About her chaotic and disordered lifestyle. And the wrong choices she might have made. Or the way that she'd been messed up by other people. Or whatever it might have been. That somehow, the conversation in her heart came back to worship again. And she connected the two. My messed upness doesn't disqualify me from worshipping. It's a choice. So, really just to finish off, without minimising the reality of difficult circumstances, and the truth is, it's different for all of us, that they're there. Or our own sense of unworthiness, due to our failures, or due to stuff that happened to us, stuff we're responsible for, stuff we're not responsible for, there is still a choice as to whether these things become an obstacle to our worship or are incorporated into it. And just to finish off, I want to read again the passage that Chris read. I didn't know he was going to read it. As an inspiration to us as to how much value God puts on our corporate worship. And I'd like to encourage us before next Sunday and before every Sunday to reflect and bring into our worship the reality of our lives in a way that's a little bit more connected. And David and those others who wrote Psalms are a good model for that. That in the same breath, we can pour out our hearts with all its all over the placeness and pour out our exhortation and extolling of the living God in whom it all makes sense. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Christ, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You can't be a house on your own, by the way. 
to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our worship is acceptable through Jesus. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Royal and priesthood. David was both. A holy nation. God's special possession. Corporately, we're God's special possession. That you might declare the praises, exalt, extol him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Extolling him on the basis of what he's done.